Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a live podcast with Jonathan Merritt, our friend and author of the new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And we've got this podcast across the street from my home church of Westover Hills, and we are at the St. Matthew's Episcopal Church with our friend Merrill Wade. So he and I are hosting a conversation with Jonathan Merritt, and you're about to hear that one in just a second. But first, let me tell you about today's sponsor. It is Northeastern Seminary. Perhaps you're exploring a new opportunity to serve or have been invested in ministry for years, or you're somewhere in between. This is where Northeastern Seminary meets you. Between reading scripture and knowing how to live a life of faith, between having an idea of where the church is headed and being able to plan and articulate a vision, between relying on what you already know and being open to learning from others throughout the world. If you find yourself in this sacred space between, the certificate and degree programs at Northeastern Seminary are designed to equip you in the next phase of your ministry. Whether you have been called to be a faithful teacher, transformational leader, missional pastor, or biblical peacemaker, you can find a course of study that will prepare you to fulfill your purpose in God's creative and redemptive work in the world. Find out more at nes.com edu slash calling that's nes.edu slash calling go check out our friends at northeastern seminary now on to our conversation with jonathan merritt that was good thanks i I practiced i practiced yeah and i heard two and i heard two great sermons this morning uh in the back and right here yeah mary mary and luke so i i had some grist for the mill yeah I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> speaking of grist, um, yeah, speaking of the sermon this morning, we had a little phone conversation this afternoon, and you told me that, uh, I, I, I believe the phrase was, because you know words can create life, and so your words created life in me after they created death. You said, until this morning, I never really thought of you as like a serious individual. <laughs> I think that was something along those lines. I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact words. Um, but uh, no, I, I we've I've, known each I've, other for years. We have known each other for a long, long time. Yeah. How long have you known each other? S- years, seven years, years maybe. Mm-hmm. Where, did like get, where did y'all? Where did y'all meet each other? Not that tall. Uh, we your hair met, was that tall. We met. My hair was that tall. We met. Uh, I guess I was on your podcast. Yeah, you were on my podcast. I was on his podcast. One of his books. Mm-hmm. I was on your podcast. Yeah. And then we. Uh... So okay, so here's the story. This is why this is taking place. Is you and I were on the phone a couple months back, and you were saying, I'm going to be in Austin, and I'm going to be at uh, St. Matthew's doing an event. And I said, I know St. Matthew's. And I know them so well because Merrill one time invited himself and his entire church to join us on a Sunday morning. Yes, I love this. And I thought, well, if he can invite himself over for an entire Sunday morning service, I can invite myself into his event with you on a Sunday night. I feel like that's fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Uh, no complaints. Yeah. So the name of your podcast is Newsworthy, Newsworthy with, with Norsworthy, yeah. and, you've, and you've had this, we're in the podcast now, I mean, you've had this podcast for, you say, seven years, six years? It's, like? it's been a long time. Yeah? How they, many shows? Over, probably 300-ish, maybe mm-hmm. over 300 at this point, been, been a few. Yeah. Yeah. And Merrill's been on a few of them. But, you, but he was an early p- participant in your podcast? 
It was, it was, probably, it was probably two or three books ago. Yeah, that sounds about guess. right. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I've kept up with, with Jonathan's work. I've followed him. I've read his, his content, which is always outstanding. I've always said that Jonathan is one person that I would never want to debate with in public, even if I was right. <laughs> and so I don't plan on changing that tonight, uh, even though your words kind of broke my heart this afternoon. I, I, well, I, I think you're a, a wonderful preacher, and you know, I was just teasing. Yeah. Is there a chapter on forgiveness in the next round? There, uh, no, there, there is not a chapter on forgiveness in this one. So the book is basically... On the next one, though. In the next, in the next one? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Possibly. We'll see. I've, I, I think forgiveness is a super important theme. One of the things I did in this book, it's sort of divided into two halves. If you haven't read the book, you'll see this. Um, what he's referring to is this whole second half of the book is a series of essays, 19 of them actually, on different words. Words that I, uh, I'm not providing a new dictionary. It's not, this is what this word means for you. Uh, what I'm doing is, is modeling what it looks like to reimagine sacred speech. And so there are words like um, pain, God, sin, uh, lost, um, blessed. Blessed, uh, blessed broken, uh, mystery. Mystery. They're, all, they're so, all in there. And so you, you say that there are kind of three options for what you can do with these words. Mm-hmm. Your premise is that <clears throat> people are speaking Christian less today than ever before. You have research that goes to support that from Barna. And in fact, what we should, I, maybe I'll set this up a little bit because uh, there's two trends that are happening in the United States and they're happening everywhere, including a place like Austin. The first is, is that sacred words are vanishing. They're actually disappearing from the English, English language. How do we know this? Well, everything these days is like the six degrees of Google, so it's no surprise that this goes back to Google. Google compiled several years ago uh, all of the, the, the published, written, recorded words in the English language from 1500s until present day, and they've made these searchable. So you give a speech and there's a transcript, a blog post, uh, a book, a magazine, etc. It's all searchable. So what you can do is you could be a 12-year-old who lives in Arkansas, and if you have an internet connection, you can actually search the frequency of word usage at any point in history. What we've found is, is that across the board, religious and spiritual words have been plummeting. Uh, not just big, meaty theological words, you know, a word like sanctification, whatever that means, that one we would expect to decline, but also just common spiritual words. The word grace has declined, courage declined, and by almost 50% over the last 50 years. Compassion words have plummeted. Uh, uh, Kindness words have plummeted. So we're seeing all these trends where economic language is on the rise, ethical language is declining, uh, communal language is declining, individualistic language uh, is on the rise. And what we found is, is that these words have shaped us and they've shaped our culture in certain ways that we never realized before. The second trend is the death of spiritual conversations, that we no longer feel comfortable talking about God and faith and spirituality in our everyday lives. That includes our families, our friends, but also our coworkers, the people at the PTA meeting, etc. So when I did this study, I found that only 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a regular basis, which is only once a week. It's not that much. 
and only 13% of practicing Christians say the same thing. So this is fascinating that we live in the United States, 70.8% of Americans claim to be Christian, but only 7% of them have confidence to use these words, to have these conversations. You know, we, if we care about something, we talk about that something, right? I mean, I'm sure you, today, yeah. uh, when we were talking, we talked about your children. You brought up, I brought up. How weird would it be if you knew Meryl or Luke for five or ten years, and then one day you found out they had a spouse and kids that you didn't know about? You'd think that was so bizarre. You never talked about? We, if we care about something, we talk. You care, you care about the Longhorns? You talk about yeah, the Longhorns, yeah. right? This, yeah. we, this, yeah. this is, uh, right? So, uh, so um, it, you, we, we, uh, we talk about things we care about, and yet so many Americans say they care about spirituality, but they don't talk about it. Do, do you think it's based in fear of, of embarrassing themselves, or is it about coming off perhaps as too strong, zealot kind of passionate believer type, oh, just a, a strange person that might offend somebody. Well, we have in the book, I give you kind of the 13 top reasons, and they're all in these nice little infographs to make it really easy. But I divide it into kind of three categories. One is what you're referring to, which is what I call avoidance. That's people saying, I don't want somebody to think I'm an extremist. Yeah. I don't want somebody to think that I'm a religious extremist, right? Because that's not something you want to be in this day and age. So they avoid that because they don't want to be thought of in that way. Other people will say the number one answer people say why they don't have these conversations is, is religious and spiritual conversations tend to create fights and tension. And of course, if you've ever been at Thanksgiving and had Uncle Philip shaking a drumstick at you telling you what he believes the Bible says, you can understand why people avoid these types of conversations. Uh, There are a whole uh, different group of people who say, I don't know what these words mean. And that's not just non-religious people. So many of us, and I realized this when I moved, when I relocated from Atlanta to New York City, I would have spiritual conversations and somebody would say, you you know, you said that word grace or you said that word Christian. What does that mean? And I realized not only did they not understand what it meant, I didn't actually understand Mm what it meant. That, that you know, uh, the, the late Dallas Willard said, um, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. Mm. You, you, we've talked about these words. We've used them so often that some of them, we don't even know what they mean anymore. I mean, what does grace mean in, in, in a world where you lose a spouse before, long before their time, right? What does forgiveness mean when somebody does violence to your family, uh, we have to begin reimagining these things. And, uh, another great example, which I use in the book, we talked about this today, is the word pain. What does the word pain mean in a country where 100 million people suffer from chronic pain? Not acute pain, not the kind that Tylenol take care of, but chronic, nagging pain, the kind, the kind of pain that will not go away. We have to reimagine. This is a new cultural moment we're in, and these theological words have to be reimagined because so many of them, I think now, we don't feel they are no longer competent to carry the weight of the world. So you say there's three options for what we can do with these words that are losing their place in the cultural lexicon that they used to have years before. Yes, so when, when, it, when, a, when a language is dying, mm-hmm. there are three possible approaches, two are bad, one is helpful. 
Well, do tell us what I they are. I will tell okay. you what they are. So, yeah, come on. We, we'll listen. Yeah. So they're, they're, what I did, I spent, this book took me four and a half years to write. And I took one whole year was spent just studying linguistics. And I, I became obsessed with dying languages. So I would just read about languages that die. It's really weird, but I did the work for you. You're welcome. So uh, I was learning about dying languages because every year a lot of languages die and they increasingly die. We're getting, we have fewer and fewer languages that exist every year around the globe. And whenever a language is beginning to die out, there are three possible approaches. One is what I call fossilization. Uh, if you, you know, a lot of um, uh, fundamentalists, for example, they fossilize their words. You go into a lot of churches and they say, don't, don't, don't question what any of this means. We've already figured it out, right? My job is not to reimagine a word. It's just to do apologetics, to argue with you so that you now realize you had it wrong and I had it right. Now you agree with me. So if you go into a great example, and I'll pick on this particular stream of Christianity because they're not seated up here. But uh, if you were to go into like one of these really rigid like new Calvinist churches, like a reformed, a super conservative like reformed church, and let's say you decide you want to go into that church and you go into Sunday school and you say, hey, yeah, I don't think that um, you guys really maybe have thought all the way through what salvation means or what sovereignty means. Maybe we should have a discussion about that. That's not going to work out real well for you. That's not up for discussion. So it's been fossilized. All of these words have been sort of dipped in liquid amber, and they're now untouchable. They're sealed off. That is, that, 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 that process of protecting words is the fastest way to kill a language when you just say, don't touch my words. But some might say, if the word salvation means X, we don't need to change it because that's what the word means. And if this is what sovereignty is, then why do we need to reimagine? Because truth is truth. Therefore, why do we need to change it? It should be in the, like, the Jurassic Park recipe like you just yes. described. Great question. It's because of this. Um, linguists are like uh, podcasters, pastors, columnists. They don't agree on much. But they do agree on this. Languages either change or die. Period. There is no exception of this in the history of the human civilization. They will change or they will die. Every language is always moving toward either evolution or extinction, and there are 0.00 exceptions to this, right? I'm not arguing for my point of view. I'm just informing the world of exactly what every linguist will tell you happens. And if you look at the Christian language, you find that's the way it's been behaving for all time. They've always been changing. A great example, and I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent because you brought this up. Uh, one of the best examples in the book is the word sin. The, the word sin uh, actually transforms. It's reimagined twice in the text, and it's been reimagined many times in Christian history since then. The earliest Jewish writings in the, in the Hebrew Bible understand sin exclusively as lawlessness. So you get the Mosaic law. What's sin? You break a law. You break a law, that's a sin right? By the time you get to temple Judaism, well, it's already been morphed. That sort of has started to fade away, and now sin is imagined as weightiness. So you remember like the high priest, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll remember the high priest would, every year you have the Day of Atonement, he would call together the community, and they would bring the scapegoat. You'd lay your hands on the scapegoat, right? That the weight had descended, weight of sin, and it was communal, not individual, 
right? You, you, you didn't have your own Day of Atonement. We just needed one for the group. So it was a communal understanding of sin. We would put the weight on the scapegoat, chase it out of town. The weight would be lifted, but it wasn't permanent, so it would start to lower again. By the time Jesus comes along, we're not even talking about sin as weightiness. You're not even going to find that in the New Testament. Now it has this kind of, because you've got this like, the Greco-Roman Empire has like early financial markets, you've got it understood in economic terms. So Paul comes along and says, the wages of sin is death. Well, if if you put Paul into a time machine and send him back, the high priest will have no idea what he's talking about because that understanding of sin is non-existent. It's not he's choosing from many conceptions. That conception has never come about. Jesus even plays with that word a little more and says, well, if there's a cosmic bank account and I'm debiting from that when I sin, could it work in the opposite way? So Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven that will not decay but will shine the age to come. You can actually make deposits into this bank account. So this actually metastasizes. So by the time you get the Protestant Reformation, you've got like indulgences, right? Now we're just paying it out, like literally paying it out. So the Protestant Reformation in many ways begins to reimagine the language around sin and it fractures it. So now you go into a church and you might hear someone say, you have a sin problem. Well, problem solution language is modern language. It's not New Testament language. You're not going to find that. We've reimagined that. Even if, even if somebody says you, you've got a, you, you, you're sick and your, your, sickness, your sickness is sin, you're sin sick. Outside of one verse where Jesus says, I've come for the sick and not the well, that's clinical language. That's kind of post-scientific age language. That's not biblical language. So we've actually been reimagining these words since the beginning of, of, of uh, not even just the Christian faith, but the Jewish faith. So what has happened is, is we, we're children of Merriam-Webster. So we have dictionaries, and we've come to believe that there's kind of this single universal meaning of a word that exists for all time. That's a very new concept, and it is just simply not the way that language works. Okay, so first option, fossilization. Yes. I'm not pointing because there's three of us. I'm not saying Merrill yes. represents. I'm a fossil. No, no. I'm not saying that. Fossilization. No. Yeah, okay, no. but, but the other option. I see what you did there. See, yeah. It's just kind of how we, uh-huh. I didn't see this like this. But fossilization, and then you have substitution. You can substitute these words and get new ones in. Liberal, now, liberals love that one. Okay, now here's the thing that you do in the book that's very peculiar. You're opening... I will call it a talk since it was like 15 minutes. Meryl will call that a homily. Mm-hmm. Like it's half a sermon for, for where we come from. But you started and you quoted Barbara Brown Taylor. Yes. You did. And you, you love Barbara Brown Taylor. Love her. Now, but in the book you quote her and you say she's kind of wrong. Yeah, I do criticize. Uh, uh, love her, but I also critique her approach. And, and she takes a substitution approach. Not substitutionary, but a substitution approach, which is <laughs> if I don't like a word, and there are lots of words like this. Like, we talked about sin. Like, there are a lot of people who say, I don't use the word sin. I don't like the word sin. I'm not going to use it. It has a negative connotation. So rather than protect words, we pitch words. We just go, I'm not going to use that anymore. Maybe we'll find a replacement word, right? So you go into a church and they, they don't talk about sin, but they'll talk about messiness or brokenness, for example. Um, they may find a replacement. A, a, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor and Rob Bell, two people I interact with in the book, have both said they don't really use the word God anymore because it just carries so much baggage. And so they've just said, we're just not going to use that. So they use a replacement word. And you know people like this. They talk about the universe, but they're just, they're just using a different container to put the same idea in. It's not really uh, a workable approach. One, it's not scalable because you just pitch all the words out and then you have nothing holy. You've got no holy language left. There's nothing left to build on. You've gotten rid of all your words. 
Two, it solves a problem that doesn't exist. There's nothing inherently offensive about a word. Nobody is offended when you put the letter S next to the letter I next to the letter N. A word is an empty cardboard box. It's the idea inside of it that you have a problem with. So if you just change out the cardboard box, but you don't mess with the idea, you haven't done anything. The other problem is, is we call ourselves, and so do Jews and Muslims, we call ourselves as Christians people of the book, which means we have a sacred text. So you just stop using the word sin, but eventually you come back to the text, you have the the gospel readings that we have today, and you end up bumping into that word again, and you realize it didn't go anywhere. You just stopped using it. So what I argue for in the book is the third approach, which is language transformation, which is that we as a community of Jesus followers, or if from whatever your faith you come from. But for me, as a Christian, I write as a Christian, that, that us as Jesus followers, that we would come together around these words. The words that we struggle with, that get stuck in our throats because they've become so negative and meaning. Or the words that have been hollowed out. The words that we love and we believe in, a word like grace, it's like, you know, biting a cloud. What does that mean? that we would come together as a community and we would start to reimagine these words afresh, that that essentially is what restores confidence in the vocabulary. Let's do a little experiment. Just anybody listening to him talk about words that are becoming bankrupt and fossilized. Think of a word that you associate with your faith or with Christian tradition and just throw a couple of words out for us. Any word that bothers you, intrigues you, frustrates you. Anybody. What? Genuflect. She's not from the Church of Christ. Yeah. So a genuflection Genuflection. is a Latin word where it means you're going to kneel forward towards something you're honoring, right? So a genuflect is is in in our church an optional way of reverencing God's presence at the altar. But does that word really bother you? Genuflect? Oh, yeah. So so, uh, that's actually one of the primary drivers is confusion. So if you're confused about words, if you think it's one thing and then it does, and and then it means another thing, you won't use it. And this is why it's interesting. Older generations are actually less likely to have spiritual conversations than younger generations. You would think it'd be opposite, right? You, You hear on TV, all these people talking about we're becoming secular and pluralistic and all these things. But what happens is, is the older you get, the rules change, and you don't know the rules anymore. You start to become confused. Wait, does that mean this, or does that mean this? Or, mm-hmm. And then you say, you know what, heck with it. I'm not going to use any of these words because I don't know what they mean. And many of us have grown up in faith traditions where there's so much emphasis placed on speaking God precisely that if you don't know the rules, well, what's offensive, what's politically correct, what you don't know, you just say, I'm just going to back out of it. I'll let the priest say what the priest says, and I'll listen, and I'll just kind of believe whatever I believe, but I'm not going to speak it in public because I don't know what the rules are. So confusion is one of the main drivers, particularly among older individuals. And when I say older, I just mean people who are, are say, say, your midlife uh, or later. Once you start to feel like this world is changing and the rules are changing, you, if you be- get confused about a word, you'll stop using it. Somebody else had a word over here. Holy. Holy. Tell us why, what is the frustration there? I, I think this, not so much me, I think it's lost way the world doesn't have the concept of something 
sacred the things mm. you, that you can't get home. We want to be able to micromanage everything, our words included. Mm -hmm. so something that is covered in mysticism is foreign. Yeah. So it's the word holy is just losing its meaning, and it's so people are afraid to use it. It's awkward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and some people are afraid. Um, so another thing we saw in the research was people say, I don't want to be thought of as religious. What they really mean, I think, when they say that is um, they don't want to be seen as self-righteous. And so when you use a word like holy or sacred, it seems to divide. So if you, if you talk about a holy moment or a holy rite or a holy ritual, it sort of divides and it can feel in many ways a lot of just kind of basic words that, um, that uh, describe sacredness over and against something else, right? Unholy. If you say it's holy, it assumes unholy, and people get antsy about that. So there are a lot of people that will avoid giving, they, they avoid labeling something as holy. And yet, what do you call something that stirs you in a way that you really can't describe, that touches on something that is not even of this world? You have to have a word for that. And there are a lot of people that have holy experiences, and they, they have holy moments, and they engage in holy rituals, and they... They don't have any words to describe it because they're afraid of using a word like that. So words are always changing. Words are always evolving. I heard recently that the definition for the word literally changed and literally no longer means literally. Right, right. right. And so, so the word has been like destroyed, like the word awesome, to like overwhelm in the sense of like transcendence and now it just means like when a surfer sees a great wave. And so the word has, has lost the, it's almost like it's lost the soul of the word. Mm -hmm. And so as these words are losing and changing their definitions, and you're arguing for we need to transform them, how, how can we have quality control for the transformation of words that it's going in the right direction? Oh, yeah, that's, so that's hard, right? Because you want to, we, we're in the 21st century, we're control freaks. We want to be able to control the process, and language transformation is a very difficult process to control. The only thing you can do is speak intentionally the best you can. Get together in your community groups, around your kitchen tables and your coffee tables. Have these conversations, because a word is defined by the community that uses it. And you know, what, when you say the word baptism, mm -hmm. and when you say the word baptism... It means different things if you're talking to a Church of Christ congregation or if you're talking to a room full of Episcopalians. If you go down the street to the Pentecostal church, they may be thinking of something totally different, right? They, you say baptism, and they think about speaking in tongues, and, and it's totally different. So the words look so much better compared they, to them. Well, you know, depending on, depending on what... <laughs> Just and kidding. I was raised Baptist. So you think about this post-conversion up in the baptistry, like dunking and... And there's all different conceptions of what baptism means. It's formed by the community as the community uses it. And that, that's the hard thing. Because in order to speak God from scratch, it takes courage. Because it's not a process that you really can control. It's not about creating another dictionary. Well, let's just come up with a new dictionary that's better. And let's all give everybody the dictionary. That's the easy way. What I'm really arguing for is that we would become more active 
in a language that is changing, always changing in our midst. One word that we have to be active about that seems to have been like taken captive by something outside of the way that, especially scripture uses it, is the word blessed. I know Merrill really connected to your chapter on blessed. Yeah. Most of the time when somebody tells me how blessed they are, I just feel like they're bragging. I mean, and it's, and I, I, that's painful because I use the word, I look at my parishioners and friends, we all use the word. But often it's, I'm so blessed that I get to do X, Y, and Z. And you realize it's something that you're really happy about and you're sort of proud of. And so I'm blessed. I'm blessed. It's as if God, you don't mean it this way really, but it's as if God's kind of bestowed upon you something that God hasn't bestowed on somebody else. God has made you very special. So you're blessed. And it just, you, you hear it... Um, I can remember, much to my chagrin, in the late 90s, the head coach in the University of Oklahoma was, a, was an evangelical Christian, and they came back and tied, actually beat Texas in overtime in a game. And he said, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for this victory. We are such, we are so blessed by God. Now, you just track that out. Jesus wanted the Sooners to beat the Longhorns. And, and if... But that it's a, tough to argue with. It's tough uh, to argue. It's a rock. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No rock. tomatoes. No tomatoes, please. No, but my point, my point being is the book. idea that I'm happy and I feel really feel fortunate, almost lucky. And so many of us have a great deal of resources simply because the system is rigged for us. And when the system is rigged for us, and we, I mean, I can remember one time talking to a person about, uh, we, were, we were, my first, my second job in my career was a landman for an oil company, and it was some layoffs about to take place. And I can just, I can remember thinking to myself, I hope I don't get laid off, but there wasn't even that much of, an, of a thought that I wouldn't get another job somewhere. It never occurred to me that I couldn't get a job. It's never in my life occurred to me that somebody's not going to hire me. Wouldn't, I mean, so in that regard, I might say, I'm blessed. But does God bestow upon this individual some unique blessing in order that he can thank God or she can thank God and tell everybody how blessed they are? Look, I'm getting carried away here, and I know it. <laughs> But that's a word for me that has multiple layers of meaning. And there's the, the you know, we're, we're so blessed that we have this and this. And sometimes it just means I'm rich or, you know, my, I'm, I'm a winner type thing. And part of this is because, I mean, how many of you have been on Facebook, Instagram, anything in the, all of you? So it's, it's because it's become a hashtag you know, so somebody who got the Lexus for Christmas and wraps it in a bow, takes a picture, it's hashtag blessed. So it tends, or you're like, you, you're in Punta Cana and you're with your adoring husband or at least the person who, according to all the pictures, is adoring, but may or may not be. Um, but, and so it's always hashtag blessed. And I'm the guy, you know, scripture, you go back to scripture and it says every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so what does that mean? Is that ever, is there ever a material blessing? You know, but what about everything else? What about, um, what about the, thing, the things that are not um, 
external, but they're internal? Mm -hmm. What about the things that are not materialistic? What about just a sense of peace? You know, that, that will never show up on your Facebook feed, but that's a blessing. The problem is, is that our conception now has become materialistic and consumeristic, and so there's no understanding of blessing as just a kind word that your coworker gave you in the lowest moment. What a blessing that was, right? And that's something that is, that what often happens is, is now we've associated blessings with privilege. Yeah. Uh, and, And I think that we've reduced the word blessing to something. It's certainly when you think of Jesus's lengthiest conversation about blessings in the Sermon on the, on the Mount. How many times do you see someone uh, showing um, up on their Instagram feed how meek they are or how poor in spirit they are, right? Or, man, today I was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. You're never going to see that right? And so what would it look like if we began to reimagine this word that would be accessible to all people? But it seems that what happens in those moments is you got the car, you're grateful for it, and you're reaching for language that somehow attributes this to God. And so the language that you have is, oh, I've heard the word bless, so I'm going to grab that one. And I think people genuinely don't have like the vocabulary to be able to use in that moment correctly. Well, and part of it is because the type of conversation that we have just had here, we're not having those conversations. Mm. Nobody is calling into question whether we're using words in ways that are life-giving and responsible or whether they are oppressive, whether they are misrepresenting who God, who we believe God is, And so what I talk about in the book, in the end, I have this how-to guide for seekers and speakers where I say, why don't we get together and have conversations just like this? Like all of us have these conversations and we take a word there where we feel attention and we say, hey, that word blessed keeps showing up. And we should should say to each other, let me tell you how it makes me feel because I'll never buy the Lexus. Uh, I, I, you know, it was... I, I see the word blessed come up with the newborn baby, and I had six miscarriages, and I never had any kids, so, like, what does that mean? Am I not blessed? Does God not love me? Maybe we could have those kinds of conversations in community and become more responsible, more, um, more intentional God speakers. That's really what I'm arguing for. You, had, you said you had a thousand conversations? Like- we talked to, uh, not me personally, uh, it was through a, I had to hire a firm, I had to commission a firm, uh, Barna, the Barna Group. Yeah. We actually talked to almost 1,100 individuals, and so we asked them a series of questions and then logged those and then quantified it. So that's the data in the book, yeah. is uh, the data that was done through that poll. And so it was a poll, and, and it led to the writing of the book. It kind of gave you the backbone of the book and the project itself. Uh, as you talk to people, are you, what kind of feedback are you getting? One of the things I'll give you some feedback is that we're going to use your book in a class here for the next several weeks, four weeks at St. Matthew's. And that's important for us to do that, to get to know you, and then personally, with this experience of getting to know you, to, to begin to practice to practice the, the, the craft of talking about various words, maybe some that are not in the book, and begin to give each other a kind of encouragement and confidence mm-hmm. in using these mm-hmm. words. And that's what we're, that's what we're looking to do. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, so what had happened was I had written three books by the time I was 30. And what I was at least... Oh, no, you're blessed. I was blessed. 
Trust me, I did not make very much money on those books, so this is not as blessed as you probably think. Um, but uh, I realized, like, a 30-year-old just, I'm sorry, does not have 150,000 words of wisdom to give the world. And so I had already gifted the world far more than I had to give the world. So I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not writing a book every two years like they, they ask you to do until I have something that I feel like is so important that it has to be written and I'm the person to write it. And so several, many, many years have gone by since I, I wrote uh, a, a book. And it was because I started having conversations with people. Because, well, first of all, I lived it. Because I showed up in New York City and I, and I was, as I say, I was struck mute in a strange land. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't speak anymore. And that's really hard for a person who grew up in church, who grew up fluent in the vocabulary of faith. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm tongue-tied. I was embarrassed by it. I said, why can't I have conversations with neighbors? People would say, what do you do for a living? And I'd get a knot in my stomach having to say a religion writer because they'd ask all these hard follow-up questions, and I just couldn't, words couldn't, just couldn't come out. But then I started talking to all kinds of other people. And there's, a, there's actually this passage in the book. Uh, there's a, a list of several lines, and it's, it's inspired by the people I talk to, so I'll, I will read this one short part. I say, millions of Americans now struggle to find sacred language that can adequately describe life's deeper truths. Perhaps you've run into this awkward language barrier in recent days. Maybe you were spoon-fed religious words since infancy, but now wonder as you've matured whether many of those terms need to mature too. Maybe you once believed that accepting faith meant praying certain words, but now you know better. Maybe you formerly assumed that using particular words and avoiding others somehow increased your spiritual stature. Maybe the rigid religious tradition that you come from has made you so anxious about speaking God with precision that you end up not speaking God at all. Maybe your parents or your pastors or your friends have used religious words as weapons to oppress or repress, shame or scold you. Maybe you've been turned off by the sharp syllables of street preachers, the slick pitches of televangelists, or the trite words of pious politicians. Maybe you squirm when you hear people use words to convert others without considering that perhaps they are the ones who need converting. Maybe you still walk into church most weeks but you object to hearing to what you hear while you're there. This is what I was hearing from people all across the country, people giving me these, and, and I always listen when I write a book, I always listen for things I call pings. People articulating the same thing over and over and over. I bet there were many of you out there when you heard that you said, yeah, my, my, my dad, my mom, they use this language, and that's one of the reasons why I, I kind of I get... Um, I shrink back from this. I don't really want to go there. Maybe I'm afraid of what people will think about me if I use this language. I hear these from people from, from not just in New York City, but from Florida to Texas to California to Wyoming, all over people are saying the same thing. They're saying they have spiritual lockjaw and they need, for lack of a better term, a little spiritual speech yeah. therapy. Yeah. You were interviewed by the statesman for, for this event. And one of the things you said in the interview was how neat it was to have two churches coming from kind of different uh, traditional backgrounds. 
uh, different denominations coming together and how this is the kind of conversation that you want to help facilitate. How do you see that taking place? Yeah, because, because to speak God from scratch, what you don't want to do is get together a bunch of people who think and talk just like you and then just create an echo chamber. You want to invite in people uh, different uh, races, different genders, different socioeconomic status. Bring people in because it's that, that contextualization where somebody says, hey, uh, y'all rich white folks, y'all use this word this way. Let me tell you why it hurts people who come from my community. And you go, oh my gosh, I never knew that word wasn't working well for, for everybody. And you can begin to identify problems with speaking God. So when you bring two people together and you have a common conversation, even though you come from different perspectives, what happens is is you achieve a higher consciousness, a better understanding of what it means to speak God. So this is exactly what I hoped and prayed for that four and a half years would happen. Well, that's great. That's that's really great. That's very exciting because uh, speaking to our friends at Westover and our parishioners here at St. Matthew's, uh, this surprising friendship is going to advance both of our congregations and is going to help us with uh, major challenges, especially challenges of mission with hurting people, people, uh, children in the fourth grade who are undernourished, are being taught bad things at home, need support, need mentoring. We're going to be coming together to support Pillow Elementary together. That's, these are important works that we do together, and it doesn't, it's not necessary for us to have exactly the same uh, list of beliefs or statement of faith, because what we already know, we already know that every time we get together, something sparks within us, and there's this sense of we need more time together. We need, and so I think this particular uh, project of having, mixing the churches and anyone here that is here for, for Jonathan, maybe read about this in the newspaper, uh, we will be having opportunities for people to talk about these words. And uh, there's a lot of words. I mean, the word salvation is all over the place in terms of its meanings. And there, there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of these conversations to, to give each other, as you said, courage, but also to enjoy, if you're like me, I just enjoy seeing how many ways people experience uh, a, a conversation itself, what they learn, what they don't learn, what they take away. I had, I, you know, I had a, gave a, a talk this morning, and, and one of the persons here in the room said to me, I don't think you meant to say what you said, and he was right. I didn't mean to say, I'm talking to Warren right there, you were right, I, I said something, it's not exactly what I meant to say. And sometimes we just, sometimes it's just a poor use of words. Sometimes it's because the, the actual word we use is not discussed enough. And so just having conversations, I think, would be and, really important. We can do that. And to your credit, and for all of you who, who attend the, these churches, first of all, this doesn't happen. You, you, do, you do not realize how rare, the, I've never heard of this. For Episcopalian Church of Christ, I've never heard of this. And it takes, really, I haven't. I haven't. You, I'm telling you, I get back to, I'm in a dear diary. You're not going to believe what happens. Talk to you soon, diary. Jonathan. So 
It never happens. And it, one of the reasons it doesn't happen is, is because you don't get two churches this close together who have two pastors who are comfortable enough in their own skin and they, they don't come with all of this pride and hubris to say, it's really about the mission. It's really about loving the least of these in this community. And it's pretty, pretty exceptional to watch. Yeah, thank you. I'd, I'd agree. We're, we're both really humble. Yes, thank you. I think it's neat to see how the word church can be reimagined when it doesn't become us versus them or we're the right one, but when you realize that every one of our congregations or parishes is a small C church, and we're all part of the big C church, and that gives us a greater sense of calling than our own individual name mm-hmm. that's on our building. And so I, I think your, your book is going to help us think through some of these words. The, the, the prescription for getting in groups and discussing these, I think it's a great suggestion. It, it gives us a discipline, a practice that helps us put some flesh on this idea, and I think that's a great start. So, Jonathan, we're down to about three or four minutes before we'll close. So, is there any final thoughts you want to share relative to the, the book? Oh, gosh. People always... People always uh, do that to you? Yeah, they do that to me. Um, I did that to uh, you. You did that to me. Yes. Um, why don't it better you, be great, by the way. Uh, tell, I mean. me, tell me, is there... Is there you, gave the, you talked about the word blessed. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a word for you? Maybe it was a word in the book that... And, and you don't even have to agree. You're already getting that smirk <laughs> on your face. Uh, there was a word that sticks out to you that you at least say, man, that, that really is uh, one of the words that we, Can we I need read? to reimagine. Yes. Okay, I think this was, um, this is page 14 of my copy. I think you were writing, this is about when you started writing the book. Uh, I was a geeky kid with a goofy haircut and no discernible sense of style. So that was really neat that you were talking about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank, um, you. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. That was with hair. Oh, it says in high school. Oh, I thought that was when you started writing. No. 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 Okay. That was my first one. Um, I appreciate that. that That's really, what you got out of the book. That Thank was very you. germane. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Good job. Uh, I think the conversation, uh, here's a, one of my favorite quotes you referenced from C.S. Lewis, is that God whisper, whispers to us in our pleasures, God speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And you talk about your chronic pain. Uh, and uh, uh, for much of my, my lifetime, my mom's disability and uh, struggle with chronic pain has changed the face of our family. Uh, my dad's a psychologist, and his dissertation is in chronic pain. And so this is what he deals with professionally, and this is what uh, we have dealt with as a family with my mom. And so uh, your conversation about that and understanding pain and what does it look like, um, I think you're, you're, the language you used just earlier was when a handful of Advil doesn't take away the pain, and you live with this. Um, I, th- I thought that was very valuable. And I think, like you, d- you said, there are hundreds of thousands of people who live in chronic pain, and most don't understand anything beyond acute pain that can be treated and changed. Yeah, there's, you know, what I, what I, what I say in the book is, is some of the words that I talk about, some of those words I chose and some of the words chose me. Uh, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my hands. And I write about this in the book, which is a, is a frightening thing for a writer, you know. I don't have a salary. I, I eat what I kill, you know. So if I can't use my hands, I can't pay the rent. It's a problem. Uh, and it spread. It began to spread to my arms, to my shoulder, to my neck. And it sent me into this spiral. And it was the word pain choosing me. Yeah. 
And so what I do in the book is, is I, I begin to realize that we, we, we really have to reimagine that word. There are some communities that talk about pain as if it's just the most wonderful thing in the world. You go into like neo-monastic communities, you go into, in, in really extreme uh, cases, a self-flagellation or people who crucify themselves in the desert. They say, that's the place where you meet God. You meet God in pain. You meet God in suffering. And that's where you meet God. That's a real tough thing to swallow when you're in the midst of pain, because I'm not choosing to do it. I'm not going out to the desert. The desert came to me. Uh, the other group, and, and you find this in a lot of um, prosperity gospel communities and sort of tacitly in a lot of evangelical communities, which is pain is always terrible, it's horrible, and God just wants you to get rid of it. And it's usually due to lack of faith or to the presence of sin. And so what happens then is you go, okay, you, you, you're, you can be really attracted to that when you're in pain, and, and you pray, you pray, you pray, you seek, you seek, you seek, and nothing changes, and then it's, does God not love me? Uh, do I need more faith? Uh, what sin is in my life? i got to get rid of some sin, so you're just like trying to get rid of sin. You're confessing all the time, and nothing's changing. And that's a really tough, a tough uh, spot to be in, and what I talk about in the book is, is maybe a third way uh, to talk about pain, which is, uh, I say, pain is a terrible teacher. I don't think God intends for us to be in pain. But I think that, that at the same time, uh, pain can teach us something. Carl Jung once said, if you kill your pain before you learn what it has come to teach you, you will kill yourself along with it. Mm. And so pain is here to teach us something so long as it is present. And we should learn to listen to that pain even as we attempt to alleviate of that pain. And so that's one of those words that I think needs to be reimagined. Well, it is 7.30. It's time to... First of all, let's thank you for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.